we want to begin where we left off last week in Isaiah chapter 9. I want to give you a little bit of the background as you make your way there, maybe cast a little vision for where we're going today, and hopefully set the stage for a deep and abiding and substantive celebration of Christmas. The word you'll hear me use, and I want to encourage you, you don't necessarily have to use it, but I want you to at least be able to go away understanding and being able to define it. And that word that we use as we celebrate Christmas is incarnation. That is that God is made flesh, that God has emptied himself of his glory and taken the form of a human being. He has not abandoned his divinity, but he has fully maintained it and yet completely and fully in some mysterious and miraculous fashion come as a human. As we, as we see in the book of Isaiah and as the gospel of Matthew tells us that we celebrate who Jesus is, he is Emmanuel. He is literally God with us. And so I want you to celebrate Christmas with, with all of its trappings, with all of its joy, But my hope is that Christmas for us isn't just something that's a celebration of sentimentality. In fact, a couple of authors had put it this way, that in fact, a celebration of biblical Christmas is the least sentimental thing that we can do. It's the least sentimental thing we can celebrate. And so I want to resist the temptation to, to simply celebrate what our culture, even though it converges on the same day, wants to celebrate with us. I want to push back against that and cast a vision for you something that is life-giving and life-altering. So I want to read to you a prophecy 700 years before Jesus came to be born of a virgin, beginning in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, He has made glorious the way of the sea. The land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoiced before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of His burden and the staff for His shoulder, the rod of His oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It is our prayer that these become mere, more than mere words on a page, ink on paper, but they become the very words of a loving God to His people. Last week, we established the background of this text, uh, specifically this section of Isaiah from chapter 7 to chapter 12 is kind of like the book of Emmanuel. And, and the theme of this particular section is simply, simply to trust God, not Assyria. So 700 years before Jesus came, this, there was a king by the name of Ahaz over Judah, and there was a temptation for him to make a, con, uh, a, a strange conspiracy or an alignment with Assyria to protect himself from Israel and Syria. And the Lord comes and gives a messenger, Isaiah, to speak what he ought to do, that he ought to trust that God will not abandon him, but instead God will be with him. Now Ahaz completely ignores this. 
God says, look, if you don't believe me, ask for a sign. Ahaz says, no, I don't want a sign because he didn't want to trust in God. He wanted to look to his own devices to save himself. And so he turned away from God and we see that this ends in an awful tumult and one of the worst periods and darkest days of the people of Judah begins with Ahaz making a pact with the Assyrians who betray him and rip the nation to shreds. And Isaiah says that there will be a sign given anyway, even though he doesn't want them. And it says that there will be a child that will be born in the near future. And the birth of that child will be a guarantee to Ahaz that Syria and Ephraim and Israel will be broken. There will be a child that will be born, and it will be a sign, an indicator, that the enemies of God's people will not prevail. And even though it seems as though days could not be darker, things could not get worse, this child will come, and they will name this child Emmanuel, literally God with us, as a sign that God has not abandoned these people, but He will be with them, for them, and He will destroy every enemy that has set themselves against his people. This remarkable birth is going to be a guarantee that the enemy will be defeated. And for these reasons, Ahaz should not fear the enemy. He should not live in the shadow of the fear of the oppressor and those who are out to destroy him, but instead he should trust in the Lord rather than the Assyrians. He should look to the Lord for salvation. We see the setting of chapter 9 is in the last verse of chapter 8. It says, and they will look to the earth. That is, they will look to their own solutions. They will look to themselves. They will look to the things around them. They will put their trust in the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And what we find here is there's a beginning of a narrative. There's a beginning of a story here that Ahaz and others are called to believe that will change everything. We saw last week that the greatest danger is that you will not simply not believe God, but instead that you will begin to supplement God or even replace God with something else, that you'll functionally trust in the earth. You'll trust in your own abilities. We saw also that the ultimate answers to the problems are given in Jesus. For Ahaz, it may seem strange that, that the help that Ahaz would be given would be actually a baby born seven centuries later, but it, it's meant to be a preview for us that even though we would like to have prayers for this earth and the suffering that we want to be alleviated to be given to us as a gift in God, he's going to give a greater gift in his presence, his eternal presence that will change everything. And then lastly, we saw that Jesus will be sufficient, not just in this text, not just now, but forever and ever and ever. And the solution to Ahaz's problems is actually a child that we will be born seven centuries later. You see, there's a bigger story. There's a, a grand narrative going on. And I, I want to begin to draw you into believing it and seeing it. And I want you to think, hopefully, critically about the stories that you assume, even now where you're sitting, to be true. Your narrative actually counts. Your story counts. You see, because where you're from and where you are going determines what you will actually do now. What you believe about where you have come from, your origins, and what you believe about where you are going will give you a sense of identity and it will be the identity from which you operate now. And the Bible grants to us a grand narrative that tells us where we've come from. And it tells us where, by God's grace, we are going. Such that now we have a deep, a powerfully rooted sense of identity in what God has done for us in Christ. And it allows us to ask important questions. If we know where we've come from and, and the timeline is, is heading toward eternity where God is taking us in Christ, then it allows us to ask a question. What time is it now? Where are we in the timeline? How close are we to the beginning? How close are we to the end? And we find that the story that, that actually gives the Christian meaning and life is grounded in the incarnation. That is the coming of God to be present with us and for us in Jesus Christ. 
to sympathize with us, to be our perfect high priest, to take our place and live this spotless and sinless life that you and I could never live on our own and die in our place to take the punishment that we deserved, only to walk out victoriously three days later such that now the narrative that we believe and we operate under is based on the story that we've been brought out of sin and darkness into the marvelous light that Jesus has shown upon us. Did you catch the, those themes weaving through this prophecy that there is a darkness and now these people, having heard that God is going to do something, they are now, instead of walking in darkness, they have been apparently the object the, that this great light has shone upon. And this theme weaves throughout the entirety of the Scripture. And the Christian witness is grounded in us knowing how this story began and knowing how this story ends. And knowing what time it is along this story is the most important thing for us. There are a lot of stories that are being told, and we'll, we'll begin to dig through some of these, especially in the days to come. But there are at least, I would argue, three different narratives or meta-narratives in play that undermine our ability to believe and to experience the fruit of this. At least three. The first one I would simply lump under what we would call the Enlightenment. For the last arguably four to six centuries that people have been living in, the Enlightenment, right? There's, there's a meta-narrative there. Because historically, what, became, what was before the Enlightenment? The belief that by rational thinking and by reason that people can stumble upon truth and discover truth for themselves was an emergence from what was called before that the Dark Ages. Did you get it? Do you get the narrative? Do you hear it? And whatever narrative you tend to believe and simply not question tends to be the most powerful one. And enlightenment thinking is, is one of those narratives that's woven into us. Such that now, if you question things that we believe to be true based on reason, logic, and scientific method, you are, make sure you understand this, you will be branded a heretic. People will think that you're crazy. And they will scoff at you. But notice that this text speaks directly against that. This text tells us that there evidently is a divine power. And that divine power is going to do something majestic and miraculous in our presence. And when you begin to say that those things defy logic, reason, and science, beware, you will be branded a heretic. A, a baby? Born of a virgin? Wait, he was dead? And then he's not dead? Our rational minds all of a sudden kind of hit butt up against that and we go, we've got to be explained. Well, certainly there's an explanation. Certainly there's more to the story. This story can't be it. But what you believe about where you've come from and where you're going will inform what you do now. And Ahaz is given a message about where the people have come from and what God is now doing and the symbol that he will give that will ensure that he will complete the task. That as at the very end, verse 7 tells us, the zeal of the Lord will not fail. It will do this. One of the second narratives that seems to be undermined here, I would argue, as we kind of see this, is at least for the last few decades, what I would just simply lump into the sexual revolution. Now, under the surface, I would say that's been kind of a, a failure of the Enlightenment, right? Because the Enlightenment that was supposed to give us all sorts of joy and greatness, right? The advancements of technology that were meant to make all of the problems of the world disappear. All of the advances of technology gave us, in the 20th century, the bloodiest, most violent and horrific century in the history of the world. And all of the advances in technology couldn't keep us from building things like atomic bombs and taking enlightenment rationale and using it to destroy people. And as the joy of the enlightenment begins to fade, what I think we see is kind of the, the newly emerged enlightenment is I would lump into what I would call just like the sexual revolution. The idea that pleasure is king. Self-expression is God. Disney tells this story better than anyone else, right? Um, 
what's wrong with you is out there. It's something that's been done to you, something that's happened to you. Granted, Disney does this the best because they kill parents, right? And they're like, what's really wrong is something that's happened to you. And the solution, the solution to all your problems is deep inside yourself. And if you would just dig deep enough and express your inner self loudly and, most, and, and passionately enough, then all your problems will go away. If you will, right? As Elsa would say, let it go. Just let it go. Don't hold back. The solution to your problems are deep inside. The solution to everything that's broken is in here. And if you will just express yourself, don't deny yourself, such that now our sense of identity is informed by this. Again, one of the greatest like, epistemological philosophy you can begin to understand is, is in the movie, this is not Disney, uh, but the movie Babe, where a pig, it's a pig, believes he's not a pig, and he becomes the hero of the story. How? By defying what the world said about him and expressing his inner sheepdogness. This is real. This is act- and you're like, well, I wonder why people think this way. Have you seen what we teach our kids? Like, it's, this is real. Look inside yourself. Like, forget what the prophet Jeremiah says, that deep down inside, the, the heart is capable of deep and awful and evil things. Forget that. The prophet Jeremiah doesn't know what he's talking about. You're a snowflake inside, and if you would just express, if you would just express that, then joy will happen. But has it? Do you see what's being dug into here? Your solution, it sounds like here, is not in yourself. Did you catch that? The people look to themselves, they look to the earth, and the result is darkness. The result is darkness. How is that self-expression working out for you? How's, How's that playing out? One of the most devastating things that has come from this if the sexual revolution is any indication of this desire for pleasure and self-expression above all things, I give, I give you two examples. It is created just like the enlightenment that promised joy but brought about exploitation. So also has this revolutionary thinking of the last four to six decades created the largest, most powerful, exploitative culture in the world. Just Google rape culture. Just Google rape on college campuses. Just express your inner desire. Don't suppress what's inside of you. Express it. Don't hold back. Let it out. It's created one of the most powerfully exploitative forces the world has ever known. Such that now, legal prostitution, legal I would even argue a form of legal sex trafficking happens every single day, and it's one of the largest, fastest-growing, multi-billion-dollar industries in our nation and in our economy, and it's called pornography. And you can use people. How's that working out? How much joy is that giving to people? And you see here that Isaiah is painting a picture of a narrative that deeply undermines this, doesn't it? If you look to yourself... Where does that leave you? End of chapter 8. It leaves you in darkness such that now enlightenment doesn't come from our brain. It doesn't come from the expression of ourself, but evidently enlightenment actually comes from outside. And the deepest problem that exists in the world is not out there. It is in your own heart. And the deepest, darkest place that has ever existed in human history is inside your heart and mine. And we live in this gloom of anguish, it says, this thick darkness. Before we step into the way that Jesus becomes our solution, can you resonate with this? For a lot of people, Christmas is not a celebration of joy. It's not a celebration of happiness. You know this feeling. When when either by circumstances you, you don't actually get to get together with the people, ideally, that the Christmas card says you're supposed to hang out with on Christmas. You know how this goes. Real life precludes the possibility of that kind of thing happening. Real life precludes the possibility of the Norman Rockwell painting, Rockwell painting like 
playing out in your life and mine? Some of us know this darkness. And the cloud that exists in Christmas is the empty chair. The person that was celebrating Christmas with us last year that won't be celebrating with us this year. You know this? You know this darkness? And meanwhile, there's this narrative that evidently there's an excitement that we're supposed to celebrate. And if we look at this rightly, the thing that we celebrate in Christmas, the fulfillment of this prophecy, is that that is actually normal. That living in a broken world, that living in a fallen world driven by sin and controlled by sinful people always ends in darkness. And the deepest darkness isn't out there, but it's in our own lonely and cold heart. And it's only by God's mercy that he, outside of the darkness, shines a light into it. The third narrative that this begins to undermine, I would just simply, uh, I, I can't even give you a timeline on this one, but let's just call it consumerism. This is an interesting thing. So think about in your own narrative, as you begin to think about where you are, where you've come from, and where you're going, and who you are now as a result, one of the assumptions we make now, and the new good life may not be that you seek pleasure or rational or logical enlightenment, but the new one is that you, you seek and find pleasure via consuming. Okay? The world's largest corporation is Walmart. Right? And, and I, I'm the, I'm, hey, I'm, I've contributed to that, right? Walmart is amazing. And they really do kind of sell this feeling. Have you ever felt this way? Like, like, and and they've, every day they add more to Walmart. But there's kind of this feeling like you walk into a Walmart and you're kind of like, I have everything I need. There's like almost nothing that I don't, I mean, there's like nothing I need that's not here. I mean, they don't have any building materials. But assuming you had a place to live, Walmart gives you everything to live in it. Now, I say that because mathematically we can show that's, that's, again, one of the largest, it is the, not one of, it is the largest by far, in a way, the largest corporation in the world. And the corporations behind that are all also things that create things that we consume. They're either energy companies or they are also consumer good companies. You got Samsung up there, Apple somewhere, hey, drink the Kool-Aid. Don't worry about, I know for some of you, Costco's like in the top 50 now, okay? So when I say Walmart, I know that offends you, but like, it's happening. But we are defined by consuming, and it's really strange, because the world is telling us a narrative of Christmas that's actually defined by consuming. I shared with this, uh, you this a couple weeks ago, it's like, you're not even done celebrating the gratitude of Thanksgiving and they're already bombarding you with all the things that your life is somehow less without, right? Like before, like Thanksgiving, we're, we're supposed to just stop on Thanksgiving and just thank God for all that we have. And that, that doesn't even exist anymore, does it? Thanksgiving now basically is eclipsed by Black Friday. And even the experience of Thanksgiving is kind of like overshadowed by, instead of going, oh, thank God for all that we have, we're immediately like, oh my goodness, they're selling that for $10? Are you kidding? This is crazy, right? Like, we don't even, we're not even allowed to experience the gratitude more than a couple seconds before our cultural narrative says you need more, find the good life, and here's how you buy it. You get it? And yet, what do we see here? The language of gift giving. To us, in verse 6, a child is born, a son is what? Purchased? Earned? Is there any way that you can get access to this sign of God's redeeming work in history? No, evidently it is a gift. So what's your story? Where'd you come from? Here's what I would argue, that Christmas is a a, a powerful reminder of what time it really is. Christmas is a powerful reminder for the Christian of where we've come from, a long and sordid history in this half of the Bible, of rebelling against God, of living in hopeless darkness as a result of the darkness that lives inside of us. Christmas is a powerful reminder of what time it is. 
that in spite of that darkness, we celebrate Christmas as a season of lights, don't we? Right, we, we put lights on everything. Light up the tree, light up a house, you light it up. And it's a powerful reminder of where we are in the narrative and what time it is for us. That in the midst of our darkness, light has shined in. And that light is Jesus. And he has come and he has put to death, death. In his resurrection, he has put an end to the power of sin. And one day, in the same way that you're anticipating Christmas, one day we will anticipate the coming of Jesus again and he will put to death all suffering. In the meantime, in the midst of this suffering, we're reminded of what time it really is. So what's your story? Where do you fit into the narrative? When, when Isaiah steps in here and says, this is the story, this is the story by which all other stories begin to make sense, how does that, how does that fall upon your own ears? Where are you in your story? Where, where have you come from? In fact, I would argue if you really think seriously about this, some of you are, are wrestling so deeply with where you've come from and the things that have happened to you recently, the things that have happened and transpired in your life in the last years or even decades, that now you're having a hard time figuring out where you are right now. The things that you've come through, where you've come from, have shadowed over your current sense of identity such that you don't know what to do. Or for some of you that maybe you look into the future and it terrifies you so greatly that you don't even know what to do now. And you look to what's ahead. If I asked you, where, what's going to happen to you in 10 years? Where are you going to be in life in 20 years? What kind of a human being will you be 5, 10, 15 years from now? What will you be doing? What comes to mind? And whatever comes to mind will inform who you think you are right now and what you think you ought to be doing. And I have a miraculous word. I speak to you a mystery. One day there is a light that is coming that will outshine the darkness and it will outshine whatever it is that you are hoping will happen in the next days and decades. There is a light in Jesus Christ that is not over the horizon, but it is with us and for us, and it outshines all of the other lying narratives and all the things that you believe that will actually be the good life. Ask yourself this. What for you is paradise? What's heaven to you? Can you picture heaven in your mind? What's hell for you? What's the worst possible turn of events? And I've got to ask you this question. Does Jesus have anything to do with either of them? Is Jesus present in either of those with you? Because if not, friend, you are looking to the earth and it will leave you in darkness. There is one who has come. There is one and he is God with us. And we come to find out that at least there's four different ways we think of this. I want to dig into the first two and conclude this on Christmas Eve with you with the second two and the implications of this. The first two, Jesus is the fulfillment of our deepest hopes and desires because he is a wonderful counselor. A son is going to be given and the government shall be on his shoulder. That's, a good, that's good news, isn't it? Because at least for us, at any given time in America in the last couple of decades and probably for the next few decades to come, at least half of Americans will, will either love or hate the government, right? We're in a divided spot right now. We're, we're, half of you are either really excited about the, the election or you're really living in darkness as a result of the election, right? This is nothing new. Relax. This is probably going to be the case for a while. And I say to you a mystery. Thank God that the government apparently isn't on that person's shoulders. Evidently, the government is being held by God alone. He's carrying it on his shoulder. And this one who has power, this one who has authority, this one who has sovereignty, will be referred to as a wonderful counselor. He's a wonderful counselor. Remember, Christmas is a reminder that light has dawned. And at least for Isaiah, there... 
There's a lot of things that that light looks like that begins to undermine what we typically believe to be true in our own culture. And we'll say, how? By what means? And so the turning point in verse 5, that word for, is the answer. Okay, God's going to do something. How is that going to happen? For, that is, this is the means by which this will happen. For to us, this child is born, a son is given. Remember, we saw last week that it will make all of the other trappings of war seem worthless because he will defeat the enemy himself. And that language of gift giving, something from the outside given to us, will be the means by which we get this good life. And we come to believe that, in fact, the greatest hopes, the greatest desires, they will be fulfilled, and it will be in the giving of Jesus as a wonderful counselor. He will be wonderful. You can see this elsewhere. Um, this, is, this is a theme we see especially like in Judges chapter 13, this idea of wondrous or amazing or awesome, awe-inspiring. This, this is the thing that God is going to do. He's going to send someone. And what we'll find here is most every scholar would agree this, this list of descriptions for this person can't possibly apply to any political figure. It really just wouldn't work. In fact, I mean, who could you really say fits the bill here? And this is interesting for us because we believe we find some Trinitarian seeds of the gospel here. Did you catch that? The nature of God in seemingly contradictory manifestations. Did you catch that? He's going to be a counselor. Well, how is he going to be a counselor? He must be with us and present with us and for us. But wait, he's going to be mighty God? How can you be both mighty and God and with us and for us? How can you be a mighty God and an everlasting Father, but also be a prince? I don't understand. And we, we've come to find out that this is actually the way in which God has revealed Himself throughout the Scripture, that He is the Spirit that has the power to give us counsel, wisdom, and comfort. He is God and Father who is King, who has sent Prince Jesus to grant peace. And this is confounding for anyone else, but I, I would argue you can kind of see the seeds of the gospel here, can't you? The seeds of how great Jesus will be. He's a wonderful counselor, an awesome counselor. That word counselor is typically the idea of someone who's like an agent of, of advice, someone who gives and consults and, and gives wisdom. Throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, this is how this word is used. Picture like a king and his advisors. And the amazing thing is that the way that God helps us, the way that he counsels us is by his wonderfulness. His counsel is given by his awesomeness. And actually seeing how wonderful he is, is the counsel that he offers. Let me see if I can illustrate this for us. People often regularly want God to help them. Right? You and I come to God and we have these different petitions that we offer to God. God, help us with this. We have suffering, we have pain, we have, need, we have need of healing, we have need of restoration, we have brokenness in relationships, we have brokenness in our own sense of accomplishment, the things that we've achieved and done have failed. We live in this brokenness. And this strange kind of thing happens. The presence of God is the greatest gift. And even though we're asking things of God, his response is that he gives himself. You may have heard this, you just didn't realize it. We sing this all the time, right? Come thou fount of every blessing. That's different, isn't it? Typically we just say, come thou blessing. God, bless me. Right? And even the way that we use the word blessing kind of points to one of these narratives of enlightenment or of pleasure or of consuming something that makes us feel more valuable. But that isn't our prayer, is it? We don't just want blessing. We want the fountain of those blessings. We don't simply just want something from God when our hearts are shaped by his character, we want God himself. And friend, it's much better. It's much better. It's much better to have the gift giver than a stack of gifts. 
right? There's this picture of an infinitely wealthy, an infinitely overflowing fountain of blessing. And that's what we see here is that God's wonder is his counsel. His awesomeness is our comfort. And I have to stop you on a regular basis because we regularly come in this place. We want to encourage and edify, build one another up. But often we, we ask and pray for things that I fear are just too small. Not that God, the giver of all good gifts, doesn't want to grant those blessings to us. It's just that he doesn't want us to be satisfied with those gifts. Romans 1 says that the fallen nature of humanity is that we have traded the truth of God for a lie. We no longer worship the Creator, but we are satisfied with worshiping and finding our pleasure in the creation. And we would rather worship created things that simply remind us of our own greatness than to look and seek and find our Creator, the source of all blessing. You see the difference? Our counsel, our comfort, the advice that we give is God in His own presence. I heard one author put it this way. It's like, it's like if someone went close to a nuclear explosion because they were cold. Right? And they went to a nuclear bomb and they were like, I'm cold, I, I want this nuclear explosion to warm me up. That grossly underestimates what a nuclear bomb is and its purpose. And when you miss out on the power and the might of God wanting something small, some trinket, some easy and something cheaply satisfying, you're missing out. You're missing out on something much greater. And simply asking God to make your life better is like asking a nuclear bomb to warm you up. Life's greatest treasure and joy is to know Him. Life's greatest counsel comes from knowing how awesome the counselor is. It doesn't take away the problems. It doesn't. But it transforms how you experience them. I saw this once. Uh, several years ago, uh, my grandfather uh, passed away, and, and if you've been in this spot, you, you know this. The, the last days, hospice took over, and he was in just a, an unimaginable amount of pain, and so they tried as best they could to manage the pain in his last days. There was nothing they could do for him. His kidneys heart started to shut down, and I'll, I'll never forget this. This, this, was, this was transformative for me. In the midst of his pain, it, it was really interesting. He didn't call out for more pain pills. Do you know what he called out for? My grandmother. It, it was amazing. Now he said, he, he would, in his, in his deepest, darkest anguish, he would say, Mama. He would say, Mama. Now, now at the time, I ridiculed him, okay? Uh, because I thought, who on earth would call their wife Mom? Okay? And now I know that when there's a bunch of people in your house that outvote you as to who gets to call who what, that, that's what happens. And now I get it. I, I understand it now. And, he, and he, in his pain, he, he said, Mama, and he, and he reached out feebly as he could to find her. And she would run to his side and hold his hand. And the level of comfort that overcame his face changed my life. The level of comfort that settled in on him. Like, the pain didn't go away. But the presence of my grandmother changed his experience of it. God's presence in Jesus Christ is his greatest gift. I've watched this happen and play out before, that when people are in those last moments, in the darkest moments, their greatest desire isn't always to be delivered from the pain or anguish or suffering, their greatest desire is that they wouldn't be alone. Now, when you, when, you, when you get that little bit, multiply that sensation times the infinite and matchless righteousness and holiness of God, and now we're on to something. That sense of finding comfort, not necessarily in being delivered from suffering, but knowing that because you are not alone, that this suffering is not in vain, transforms how you experience that suffering. And the experience is transformed when you're in the presence of someone that you love and that you know loves you. The awesomeness of Jesus reorients our problems. It redefines our experience of them. Not always taking it away, 
Now, we saw this last week. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, right? We actually prolong the suffering. I told you that we prolong the suffering in my house with the elf on the shelf. Santa sends this elf who just sits there and taunts my kids about Christmas for like a month. And it's like, ha, 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 Christmas isn't here yet. Again, I, good luck. Uh, good luck in your life and how that plays out. This is how this happens. But maybe you have, an, maybe you have like a, an advent calendar. But, but it's really where we actually subject ourselves to this suffering. We don't light our houses on Christmas Day. We light them like a, a month. I mean, we all know you're not supposed to do it before, before Thanksgiving, but like we light them a month before. It's like to, to enhance the waiting, giving us a little glimpse of what Christmas actually reminds us of. I've experienced this another time, twice in my life. The most impatient I've ever been in my entire life was when my wife was pregnant with my two little girls. At first, you know, you know this, the fear. The fear is this, just pray, God, just allow us to have a healthy baby. And some of you know what a grand and miraculous thing that is to ask for. You, you know what a great thing that is to ask of God. But I just was so, I was impatient. Like, is this ever going to get here? And then there are these little things, these rules that people make up. Apparently, when you're pregnant, you can't tell anyone. Someone wrote that down somewhere. Hey, this is the greatest thing in all the earth. Don't tell anybody. So, I don't know about you. I don't have a good poker face. God is delivering me from deceit and dishonesty. This was a hard thing for me. And once you get past that stage, there's just this kind of preparation, nesting. It's a real thing, people. It's a real thing. And like this kind of preparation, for the, it just makes all the more exciting, all the more the greater the anticipation is just building. And I found myself being so impatient. But I, but I found something to be interesting because I, I was like strangely praying like, God, bring our child quickly. But it was like, wait, wait, no, 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 no. Actually, don't. Like, keep, keep that baby in there. You don't want the baby to come out early. There's actually something going on in that period of waiting that is extremely important. And we come to find out that's exactly how God works. That's exactly how God grants us a vision for this restoration. Don't miss that. The period of waiting that you are currently experiencing might actually be God giving birth to something great in you and through you. And your impatience might be aborting a miraculous and amazing thing that God is doing in and through you. And this time of waiting, while it seems slow, we come to find out is exactly on time. Do you remember when I said, you know, what time is it in, in your own narrative, where you find yourself in the story? I want to read you Romans chapter 13, and, and this is what time it is for us. Beginning in verse 11 of Romans chapter 13, it says, Besides this, you now know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the time is at hand. This picture that the waiting is actually something that is beautiful and God is birthing in us is amazing. Galatians 4.4 4 says it this way, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are now sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, such that you are no longer a slave. You are a son and an heir through God. Lastly, you see that Jesus is the fulfillment of our deepest hopes and desires because He is the mighty God. He is not only amazing in the way that He counsels and comforts us, but He is God. The Christmas story taps right into this. Matthew quotes Isaiah and says that 
this baby will be born and be named Emmanuel. He tells Joseph this. Just in case Joseph was tempted to name the child, as was that custom, after a man or a patriarch in their family, he says, no, 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 this is not... This is not going to be a name of your lineage. He'll be named Jesus because he will deliver and save his people from his sins and he will be the fulfillment of God with us. Matthew's not the only one who jumps in on this. John, the apostle, tells us that Jesus Christ is the Word. He was never created. He existed with the Father in the beginning and through whom all things were made. And the Word, that is Jesus, was God. He was the mighty God. Paul, a well-trained Jew who would have known this text, a Pharisee even, says that all of the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus bodily in Colossians 2. Not just a third or a half or a part, but all of God's divine substance. The Apostle Peter, another Jewish man knowing this text, writes that through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, Jesus is our God. The opinion of these authors would mean that Jesus is something amazing. And it wasn't only them. Jesus even had a consciousness of himself. He said some amazing things that got him. People wanted to kill him. People wanted to throw him off cliffs. He says, I want you to come back as judge. Only God can do that. On a regular basis, Jesus walked around and forgave people of sins. Only God can do that. He even tells us in Matthew chapter 11, that he has an equal knowledge with God the Father. He even at one point says that before Abraham was born, I am, John chapter 8. He takes the divine name upon himself, and at different times and in different ways, Jesus, a Jewish man, says, I am God. And then thousands of people believed and came to worship him as God in Acts chapter 2. God counsels us in Jesus Christ by his amazingness but he accomplishes something for us by his might, something that is absolutely crazy, something that undermines every possible story. And if you will open your imagination to the possibility that God is doing something in Jesus, it will transform everything. If you will begin to think that where we have come from is darkness, and that the light of Jesus is shining to change our eternity, if you'll begin to even open your mind to the possibility that there is a greater narrative than the one that you've been told. If you'll begin to even open your mind to the possibility that Jesus is who He says He is, and that He is who Isaiah says He is, then it will have the power to transform everything. And even though maybe suffering and pain won't go away, your experience of it will be radically altered. You see, the hardest part of my job is that every week I stand up here and I just tell you that Jesus is God. And this is the part where God actually has to take over. Me telling you about God is like, I don't know, me coming to you with a glass of water and telling you about the ocean. Right? It's just, it, it's not analogous. And only in some infinitely small way is it at all. And I'm over here telling you that Jesus is a wonderful counselor and he is the might of God made manifest not to destroy you, but to redeem you and ransom you out of death. And this is the place, as I try to describe God to you, that the only possible response for us is for us to turn to him for the answers. Would you consider that possibility? Is it possible that all of the awful things that have said, been said about you, maybe by a broken father or mother figure, maybe all the prophecies that have been spoken over you by people that have harmed you, exploited you, is it possible that those are not actually true? That there is a greater story? And Jesus gets the last word in this story, not those things. Is it possible that God has reached down across eternity to demonstrate to you that the story that you are currently believing will not satisfy you? It will end in darkness and in gloom. But on that gloom, a great light has shined. 
in that darkness, a light has come forth, and it points to something greater and more miraculous and more amazing than any Christmas morning could ever offer. Is it possible that He is our mighty God and He is amazing because in His might He does not condemn or destroy, but He calls His people to Himself to carry their burdens and to grant them a new life? Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your goodness. Uh, we thank You for Your majesty. God, I confess that... Uh, that my words at conveying your might and your wonder are, are just infinitesimally irrelevant. They are incalculable. So God, would you step in and do for us what we could not do for ourselves? Would you do in this room what you promised Isaiah you would do? Would you do in this place? Would you be manifest in our hearts? Grant us faith to see that you are who Isaiah has promised that you would be. Would you grant for us this Christmas light and darkness? Would you grant for us this Christmas the thing that you promised you would do in Isaiah chapter 9? If there's some in this room that maybe would define themselves by a broken past or a broken future. If they would define themselves more by darkness than by light and peace and joy, would you begin to shine the great light of hope on them? Would you begin to open the eyes of their faith that they would begin to contemplate the possibility that you have given an all-satisfying gift in Jesus? And for the rest of us, would we heed this call to worship you, to honor you, to rightly glorify you? Maybe for the rest of us, we need to repent of all of the ways that we have falsely envisioned you, all of the ways that we have tried to find satisfaction in things other than you. Would we rejoice in this gift given to us that is our great counsel and the might of God made manifest to us in new life? We ask this by the power of Jesus. Amen.